0: John chapter 19, beginning at verse 31, after the death of Jesus. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells that He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken. And another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there.
1: Uh, Open your Bible if you've closed it to John chapter 19 and the passage which Ruby read so beautifully for us, and uh, I'll begin with a word of prayer. Well, our gracious God, thank you for giving us a clear and living word. We pray that you would help us according to our need that you would remove the barriers that prevent us from hearing, from trusting and from obeying and we ask that your word to us this morning would do us good and cause us to honour you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the years um, a number of people have come to me with the same question, and uh, although the words they use to express it might vary from person to person, the essence of the question is the same. And it is this, um, they say, what well, they're basically saying is if I join this church and uh, if I listen to the sermons, will I have a better life? Will I have more success at work? Uh, Will I have fewer money worries? Fewer problems to deal with? In short, will life be easier for me uh, than it was before? Now, in many ways, that is a fair question. Um, I respect it. Uh, The pressures some of you are dealing with are intense. But what's the right answer? Well, in one sense, the answer must be no. Uh, The Bible is not primarily a book of practical tips. It's not a detailed how-to manual with answers to all the practical problems of daily life. Of course, there is plenty of practical wisdom on every page if we'll only take the trouble to dig it out. But the Bible is not um, going to tell you directly how to be more successful at work, or how to make all your other problems disappear, and I'm sure you don't expect it to. On the other hand, in a far more profound way, the answer to that question must be yes, because somebody has said that the Bible has been given to us to explain the meaning of just two words. Almighty God. That's the Bible's purpose, that you and I should understand the reality of the phrase, Almighty God. I wonder if you knew that. What it means is that if we come to Scripture in a spirit of humility and obedience, then over time, God will open our eyes to see that everything in our lives, every detail, every problem, every crisis, is always under his sovereign control. And if God grants you grace to really take that to heart, well, it will transform the way that you think about everything, everything you do, whether it's at home or work or wherever it is. Will that make you better at your job? Well, I haven't the slightest idea. But I guarantee it will make you wiser. Now, the passage before us this morning picks up this marvellous theme of the sovereignty of God in the most astonishing way. Uh, If you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know that we've been trying to understand the meaning of the death of Christ. Uh, If we had time to scan all four Gospels, we'd quickly discover that between them, they record six events that took place immediately after Jesus' death that explain its meaning and significance. Uh, So, for example, the Gospel writer Matthew gives us three of them, which are not recorded in John. You can read about them later in Matthew 27. And first of all, he tells us that at the very moment Jesus died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, meaning that Jesus' death has opened the way for all believers into the presence of God. I think you knew that. Second, Matthew tells us there was an earthquake which tells us that the death of Jesus has got profound implications not just for humanity, but for all creation. And then thirdly, uh, when Jesus died, Matthew tells us that tombs were opened and the bodies of many holy people were raised to life and they appeared to their friends in Jerusalem who no doubt were as astonished as they were delighted to see them. Now, in this passage in John 19, John records three more signs for us. I I say signs, but they're really more surprises, because when they happened, they were totally unexpected. And yet, John shows us that in each case, they were all predicted in Scripture. They'd all been announced by God hundreds of years before they actually happened, The first of these surprises is that Jesus' legs were not broken. Now, our expectation here is set by what John writes in verse 31. Can we all see verse 31 in our Bibles? Verse 31, now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. Apparently, for religious reasons, the Jews want the bodies removed, but they also want to be absolutely 100% certain that Jesus is dead. In many cases, uh, death by crucifixion in those days could take a number of, well, could take several days actually. And so, to speed up the process, the Romans would sometimes smash the legs of their victims with an iron mallet. And the result was that it was then impossible for you to sort of push up on the nail to keep your chest open for air. And so, the victim would die very quickly through trauma or asphyxiation. Here, the soldiers break the legs of the first two criminals, both the one who, we're told, elsewhere had trusted in Jesus and the one who had not. And we're expecting the legs of Jesus to be broken as well. So verse 33, friends, is a surprise. Verse 33 but when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead they did not break his legs Now think about that When the soldiers arrived at the cross of Jesus they had one thought and one thought only in their minds break the legs But it didn't happen Why not Well at one level of course it was unnecessary Uh, Jesus was already dead. Uh, They were surprised that he died so quickly. But if you were with us last week, you'll remember that it wasn't actually the cross that killed Jesus, was it? So just glance back, will you, to verse 30. Verse 30 says, quite simply, Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now that verse is saying that the death of Jesus was voluntary. He chose the moment. In any event, from a human point of view, it wasn't necessary to break the legs. But there is another point of view. Because in verse 36, we're given a different explanation. Verse 36 says... These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Now, the scripture that John has in mind here comes from the account of the Exodus, where God instructs his people, do you remember, to sacrifice a lamb and paint its blood over the door of the home to guarantee the deliverance of the family from judgment and death. And in preparing the Passover lamb, God gives this strange but very explicit command to the people. Not one of its bones, the lamb's bones, will be broken. Now, at the time of the Exodus, of course, no one would have had the slightest idea why God said that. I mean, why? What's the point? And yet, throughout the Gospel of John, we've seen there is a definite link between the death of Jesus and the Passover. And what has been gripping me all this week is the evidence of God's deliberate purpose being worked out. So you may remember at the very beginning of John's Gospel, when Jesus begins his ministry, He is introduced, isn't he, as the Lamb of God. And now here, almost at the end of the book, as Jesus' work is finished on the cross, God steps in to frustrate the plans of his enemies. You see, the legs of Jesus are not broken so that the whole world will know that Jesus is the true Passover lamb that takes away the sins of the world. Some people say that the death of Jesus was simply the tragic end of an otherwise wonderful and fruitful life. But as you read John's book, what do you think? I mean, was Jesus a helpless victim? Or can you see the hidden hand of God in all of this working for your good? Can you see that God planned all of this with you in mind before the foundation of the world? Now if you can see that, is it wise to imagine that God is not also interested in absolutely everything you do? and whether it will bring you closer to his glorious purpose for your life. It would be very brave, but also very foolish, to say no. So the first surprise is that Jesus' legs were not broken. The second surprise in this account is that Jesus' side was pierced. You see, just as we were expecting uh, his legs to, so as we were not expecting his legs to remain unbroken, uh, what happens next is equally surprising. Look at verse 34. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Now, remember at this point that there had been no command from Pontius Pilate to do that. As far as we can tell, the piercing was impulsive. It was unpremeditated. It was a spontaneous, random act of violence. And yet, once again, it serves the purposes of Almighty God in two ways. First, it confirms that Jesus really did die. Uh, Medical opinion varies on what we're to make of the sudden flow of blood and water. Why the water? Why not just a flow of blood? One common view is that it indicates that the spear pierced the sack... Around Jesus' heart, where apparently fluid builds up after death. Now, that may be the case, we can't be certain. The one thing that we can be absolutely sure of is that the piercing of Jesus' side confirms that Jesus was a real man and that he really did die. Now, friends, that is really important. Because there have been people who say that, well, you know, Jesus, he really didn't take on flesh. They say he only appeared to become a human being, and therefore he never really died. So in Islam, for example, it seems that the prophet Muhammad learned about Jesus from people who held that opinion. Because in the Quran it says this, quote, They did not kill Jesus, neither did they crucify him. It only seemed so. And uh, many Muslims argue that Jesus did not really die. And of course, in denying the death, they deny that Jesus is the saviour. But isn't it interesting, in this passage, by God's grace we have the eyewitness account of John, who wrote the book, written 600 years before Muhammad put pen to paper. And then there are others who deny the death in order to deny the resurrection. So they argue that uh, Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He just fainted. Uh, He fainted from the agony of his wounds. They just overtook him. But uh, once he was in the cool of the tomb, he recovered, and he appeared to his disciples on the third day. Well, aside from the fact that there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever to support that theory, it actually undermines the history of the early church. Because, you see, the apostles were willing to die for their belief that Jesus really did die and rose from the grave, overcoming death for us. Now that was the heart of the apostolic message. Does anybody seriously think that they would have been willing to die if Jesus had merely fainted? Well, of course not. It's foolish, isn't it? No, Jesus really died. And that's why in verse 35, John Speaking here about himself, very telling verse this. The man, i.e. John himself, the man who saw it, has given testimony. And his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth. And he testifies so that you also may believe. Now why does it matter? Well, it matters, friends, because death hangs over all of us. And even the greatest men and women are frightened of it. When I was young, the most famous boxer in the world was Muhammad Ali, uh, who used to sort of describe his boxing strategy as dancing like a butterfly and stinging like a bee, something like that. He was a courageous character, great fun. And he said... I'm scared of no one, only death. And the most famous of all Greek philosophers, Aristotle, he said, death is a dreadful thing because it is the end. Now, friends, sooner or later, all of us are going to come face to face with this fear, uh, either in our own lives or in the life of someone we love, And you see, the gospel can only speak to these particular fears if it's got a real answer. Well, the answer of scripture is that in his resurrection, Jesus has overcome death. But of course, we can only say that, can't we, if Jesus really did die. So here's how one writer describes the significance of this for those who grieve for the loss of a loved one. And it will appear on the screen. He says Jesus enters into the full reality of death, not merely walking with us right up to the door, only to pull back at the final second, leaving us to walk the dark valley on our own. He comes all the way with us, right into the grey, after-death world of funeral parlours and the making of arrangements for the disposing of the body, the world of strained faces and hushed voices and tear-stained eyes. He takes his place within the world of the receding past Where death's destructive power is so real and irreversible. Dead, buried, gone. Well, you see, the spear that pierced his side confirms that Jesus really did die. But you see, there's a second way in which the piercing of the side of Jesus serves the purposes of Almighty God. And here again, John wants us to know that this apparently random, totally unexpected act is a stunning fulfillment of Scripture. It's the Scripture we looked at at the beginning of the service. Uh, Verse 37, John says, As another Scripture says, They will look on the one they have pierced. This is so remarkable. I'd like you to look at it again. And it's a useful Bible navigation exercise. Please keep a finger in John 19. Turn, if you will, to Zechariah 12, which is the penultimate book of the Old Testament. So find Matthew, turn left. There's Malachi, turn left again. And there is Zechariah. And we're going to look at chapter 12 Michael and I didn't collaborate on this. This is a total act of God, uh, bringing these two things together. Zechariah 12, verse 10. Almighty God speaking. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me The one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Pause on that. You see, God is anticipating a day when the people will mourn and grieve as they look on the one they've pierced. But who's been pierced? It's quite clear. God says, They have pierced me. Now, that idea on its own is, I think, almost too much to digest. But there's something more. Look ahead to chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin. And impurity. And then you see as John witnesses the unexpected, apparently random piercing of Jesus' side with a spear. He knows that a fountain of forgiveness has been opened up for all mankind just as God promised. It was all under God's sovereign control, you see. Now, Can you see the love of God in that? Well, of course you can. You can't miss it. Come back to John 19, because surprise number three is that Jesus was buried in a rich man's grave. Uh, When the Jews, the Jewish religious leaders, called for the body of Jesus to be taken off the cross, what were they expecting? Well, they were expecting that his body would be taken to the burial site outside the walls of Jerusalem, set aside for condemned criminals. See, that was standard procedure. But what actually happened? Verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jews. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. So friends, here we have two men, uh, both well-known, both prosperous, uh, both occupying senior positions at the highest levels of Jewish society, And isn't it interesting that until this time, both of them have been secret followers of Jesus. But on this particular day, when it was more dangerous than ever to be known as a friend of Christ, these busy men step out into the spotlight and do what even the disciples of Jesus were too afraid to do. And in case we're tempted to think that they were just simply going through the motions, John tells us that the spices they brought to embalm the body weighed 75 pounds. Now that was a huge amount. Unless, of course, they knew they were burying a king. And instead of taking the body outside the city to the common grave for condemned criminals they placed the body of Jesus in a tomb near the place where he was crucified. And Matthew, in his Gospel, tells us that the tomb belonged to Joseph of Arimathea himself. And so surprisingly, Jesus was buried in the grave of a rich man. Joseph of Arimathea was rich. I say surprisingly, But then again, eight centuries before this, Isaiah had said this is exactly what would happen because speaking about the Messiah, Isaiah writes, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Isaiah 53 verse 9. But there's something else here, because the question you and I need to ask is, well, what caused such an extraordinary transformation in these two men? Why are these secret disciples suddenly willing to stand up for Jesus at tremendous personal risk? And the answer is that the piercing of Jesus' side did even more and open up a fountain of forgiveness. Because throughout the Gospel of John, water is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And the flow of water from Jesus' side is the fulfillment of Jesus' promise that his death would be the moment when the Holy Spirit would be poured out. You can read about that in John 7, verse 37 and following. Now, let's just put this together for a moment. It's very interesting. Last week, we saw that the picture John is showing us here is that Jesus dies as God's king. Jesus himself has said to Pilate that he's a king. The crown of thorns confirms it. And Pilate's sign above the cross proclaims his kingship To the world. And now, as Joseph and Nicodemus bury Jesus as a king, we see the effect of Jesus' rule as these men are transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit because they come out from the shadows of secret discipleship and are suddenly willing to take real risks for Jesus. Can I ask you, what about you? Would your friends and family say that about you? Do they see in you a wisdom that comes from knowing who God really is and what he's done for you? And perhaps this Good Friday is the day when you realise it's the time for you to come out into the open and be known as a servant of the King. C.T. Studd was a first-class cricketer. Um, He played for England against Australia in the first Ashes series, in the late 19th century. Soon afterwards, he was converted to Christ and he became a missionary in Africa and the founder of the worldwide evangelization crusade. And uh, after his conversion, he said this, When I came to see that Jesus Christ had died for me, it didn't seem hard to give up everything for him. It seemed just common, ordinary, honesty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we have been content with a very limited, incomplete understanding of your sovereign power have mercy on us in your grace please engrave upon our hearts and minds a deeper, truer understanding of the cross of Jesus and weak as we are grant to us the boldness of Joseph and Nicodemus, to come out of the shadows and to be known as servants of King Jesus. For it is in his name we ask it, Amen.